Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that shamelessly plugs their fresh union-made witchy swag, which is available on seasonofthebee.com. Woo! So today we have Hope, Kellen, and Laura, and we are joined by two amazing guests, Evie Zavado and Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nembard. So today we're talking about the solidarity economy, and you might be wondering what exactly does that mean? Well, buckle up, because we and really our amazing guests are going to tell you. I just want to say that this episode is really great timing for me personally. We just had a Solidarity 101 meeting in Chicago a couple of weeks ago, and it was really interesting and inspiring to see what's happening in different communities here. There's just so much energy around land trusts, worker co-ops, and alternative economies like time banking, um, and it's really happening all over the city, including the south and west sides, which is really cool. So I was really happy to have an opportunity for the show to learn more about the history surrounding these things. Yeah. Yes. As Laura said, we're joined today by Evie Zavado and Dr. Gordon Amhard. Evie is the program manager of Scenic, or the Cooperative Economics Alliance of New York City, and is a worker owner of Sunset Scholars Tutoring Cooperative. She also definitely wants everyone to know that she's a socialist feminist. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Dr. Gordon Amhard is a political economist and a professor of community justice and social economic development in the Africana Studies Department at John Jay College, City University of New York, and is also the author of Collective Courage, A History of African-American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practice. She has numerous publications on cooperative economics, community economic development, credit unions, wealth inequality, community wealth, and black political economy. So we are incredibly honored to have both of you on the show today. There's a lot to cover. So I want to jump right into the discussion. And I was wondering if first off, can you both talk a little bit about how you got involved with the solidarity economy and what drew you to it originally? And also, are there any aspects of it you're most passionate about right now? Sure. Yeah, I can start. First off, I just want to say thank you so much for having me. I love listening to this podcast and also am a huge admirer of your work, Dr. Gordon Empard. So this is really exciting for me. In terms of what drew me to the solidarity economy, I kind of came in through two parallel routes. When I was in college, I was on the periphery of fossil fuel divestment organizing. And so in thinking through divestment and reinvestment, I learned a lot about cooperative economics and alternative modes of the economy. So solidarity economy work was kind of just a natural evolution of that thinking. Um, And then I went to North Carolina and saw a couple different cooperative and solidarity economy groups at the same time to kind of learn more. So I went to Renaissance Food Co-op, met with folks from the Southern Reparations Loan Fund and learned a lot that way that kind of filled out the thinking that I was already doing with some of my fellow divestment organizers. And then at the same time, I was also working at an organization that had a membership base of queer, either currently or formerly detained immigrants, all of whom were HIV affected, most of whom were trans identified. And through that organization, we were thinking of starting a worker-owned co-op amongst the membership as a pathway to employment for people that were otherwise locked out. So I kind of learned about cooperatives, particularly worker-owned co-ops, as a tool for queer liberation and access to jobs. And so then from there, I just kind of was like, oh, this framework is totally the thing. This is what I've been looking for. This is really beautiful and has a deep, rich history and kind of dove in from there to now working mm-hmm. at Phoenix 
and being a worker owner and working with folks across sectors. And in terms of aspects that I'm most passionate about at the moment, I think there's a lot of different things, but I've gotten really excited about and starting to get more involved in food justice work, food justice solidarity economy work in New York City and been really inspired by the things um, that are going on with food co-ops, CSA programs, urban farms, community gardens, stuff like that. Awesome. Yeah. Great. Yeah, thanks. And thanks also for having me and for all the kind words. I, how did I get into the Solidarity Economy? I kind of was born into it, even though we didn't have the terminology for it in the 50s and 60s when I was growing up. But my family is a family of social activists. And my parents were not just um, civil rights activists, but they were also economic justice activists advocates, even though, again, I don't think we had those words either, but they mm-hmm. definitely had an economic analysis, not just a law or social justice analysis. So I grew up with an analysis about what's wrong with the current economy, what kind of economy we would want instead, why we should have one, what kinds of things we should be doing as human beings and servant leaders and concerned citizens. Those were the kinds of discussions we had at the dinner table with my family. Wow. Um, my family took us all. There were four siblings. We all went to um, anti-nuke demonstrations, anti-war demonstrations, civil rights demonstrations. I was just telling my grandson the other day about how we weren't allowed to participate in the air raid drills in the 60s at my school. Because the presumption there was that you could somehow survive a nuclear attack. Mm-hmm. And that if we just prepared for how to survive it, it was acceptable. And for my parents, they were in the anti-nuke movement, and that was not acceptable. And the analysis was that there was no way to survive, so why do the pretense and be accepting? So we actually, there were about six of us in my school. We had to go to the principal's office every time we had an airway drill because our parents refused to allow us to participate in the farce. So that's sort of my early mm-hmm. upbringing. So as an adult, I wanted to and knew that I needed to be the kind of citizen who uh, always was looking for the systemic analysis and then mm-hmm. always looking for how do we how do we make meaningful change, you know, from the grassroots up that's really going to address the most difficult issues for the most marginalized people. Mm-hmm. So I first was at, oh, and my mother actually was also an early feminist, even though she didn't use the term. So we also had <laughs> a, gender, a gender analysis in all that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So I kind of had to become something of what I am though you know they didn't say exactly how we had to do it (laughs) right (laughs) for me I was first actually really interested in literature and poetry uh, then education and teaching but none of those really I felt like careers to me Mm -hmm. and so when I thought about a career I was thinking about how I guess you know the base for me was economic inequality since that's also how my parents analyzed things so I realized mm-hmm. that I really needed to be an economist and I came to it kind of you know by my 30s not it wasn't a quick fast early decision or maybe late 20s and I'm sorry if I'm rambling but um no. <laughs> trying to put all the context in there so by the time I finished a master's in education I actually became a child advocate and worked at the children's defense fund 
Mm-hmm. And one of the lessons I learned there in trying to do change policy, especially federal policy, I learned this actually from the president and founder of the organization, Marion Wright Edelman. Edelman. She always told us staff that really we didn't succeed with getting policy changes if we didn't get the budget allocations also. Oh, so wow. it wasn't enough to have policy on the books because if they didn't allocate the money for it, then the policy wasn't implemented, it wasn't effective, and it didn't. It, it's as if it didn't exist. Mm-hmm. So that got me thinking back to the, you know, the training I had been getting from my own parents and Mm -hmm. I realized yeah the economics matters and then I actually moved to Central America to Belize and I was a um, managing editor of a leftist newspaper and I was called upon to write editorials and I realized most of the editorials I wanted to write about were were about economic inequality and Mm -hmm. uh, the stranglehold that you know global capitalism had on local development and that kind of thing, but I didn't know enough about it. So that's when I decided to go to grad school, become an economist. I wanted to learn the master's tools and understand traditional economics so then I could study and try to implement alternative economics from a position of understanding the weaknesses of mainstream economics. Mm -hmm. And so I picked a grad program that had political economy because that's really the only way to to critique mm-hmm. mainstream economics. So I went to UMass Amherst, got a master's and a PhD in economics with a specialization in political economy. And at the time, I was actually studying international finance and economic development, macroeconomic policy, because I thought that was the arena for making change. And I was still focused on Belize, Central America, and um, international development. But I ended up working back at the Children's Defense Fund and doing domestic economic policy, really called upon to do community economic development and analysis. And so that's, I had to train myself in community economics and urban development. And that's when I really got introduced to cooperatives, the solidarity economy, I guess. I'm not even sure if it was quite called that yet, but it became, Mm -hmm. you know, with the social forum coming up soon, we started calling it the solidarity economy. And I realized that notion, those principles all matched, you know, my whole upbringing, my whole perspective on what economics should be, why we need it, what we should be doing with it, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I just quickly moved in to that arena. I joined a group called Grassroots Economic Organizing, which puts out an online newsletter. And we actually joined the early social U.S. social forum movement, which I think started in was it the Boston Social Forum? But we realized with the Social Forum movement, they still weren't thinking about alternative economics. They were really talking about social stuff. So we started mm-hmm. a track in alternative economics. I think it was at the Boston Social Forum. And then when we had the first national social forum in Atlanta, our small group put together the whole track of materials to talk about economic justice and solidarity economy, that kind of stuff. And so I just kept moving integrating the cooperative economic stuff that I'd started doing in my professional academic life with the solidarity economy movement and solidarity economy notions. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I think this is probably a good place to get some definitions. I know Hope wanted to ask about that. Okay. Yeah, pretty much. I was just curious. We can start with Evie. What does the solidarity economy mean? Like, how do you define that term? So our listeners know what sort of what we're talking about. 
Yeah, sure. So when I say solidarity economy, I'm using a definition I'm derived by or derived from a group called Solidarity NYC, which is a collective of solidarity economy organizers and academics that through years of doing solidarity economy work and also deep listening, participatory research projects actually incubated Scenic. And so that definition is basically just the production and exchange of goods and services that reinforce um, values and social justice, the values of social justice, ecological sustainability, cooperation, mutualism, and democracy. And then usually when I'm just like talking to people casually and they're like, oh, what are solidarity economy groups? I basically just say, anything that's democratically governed and collectively owned. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm curious to hear from you, Dr. Gordon Empart, how you would define solidarity economy. Right. So very similar. I think it's just elaboration on your basic definition. So I always add non-hierarchical economics because I think it's important that grassroots, organic notion of economics, lack of exploitation, it's not always possible, right? Because we live in such an exploitative system, it's hard to create a new system that doesn't bring some of those exploitations with it. But I think the principles and the the goals of the solidarity economy are really to not to be non exploitative of human worth and uh, you know Mother Earth, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. So I, I would add that piece. Also, to me, it really is about the whole range of ways to produce or what we call social pro- social production, right? How do we reproduce ourselves as society, our families, our you know people in our families, and the goods and services we need? So what's the whole gamut? And then how do we exchange? So what's that whole range of exchange from gifting and barter all the way up to the using of a price system and... Um, prices and money. Mm-hmm. So I think also for me, the solidarity, the notion of the solidarity economy as, as encompassing all the different ways that human people produce and exchange and valuing everything. So valuing even the invisibility, invisible exchanges like raising children and things mm-hmm. like that. And then I guess the final piece would be just that the values-based economics, right? That it is use value not exchange value so how do we value the need and the use of it and then how do we value human beings as the as the force the main important piece of the production mm-hmm. yeah i think that's sort of what dr gordon m heard ended on there is um like a really important point to bring it home to people who are you know coming to this podcast from maybe uh more Marxist perspective or, you know, we have, I think, a whole range of listeners and people get into socialism for different reasons. Some people coming from more of a social justice perspective, others very like theory heavy. And I think it's obvious to a lot of people who are coming from a more social justice background why the solidarity economy is so important. But I think that if you think about, you know, Marx's uh, discussion of use value, how goods aren't valued under capitalism by how useful they are or the, you know, that sort of thing. But instead on, you know, what their exchange value is, how much money they can make on the market and how that distorts our economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the ways that the solidarity economy moves us inherently moves us away from profit motive. All of those things are really central um, to how solidarity economies, even the smallest, the smallest um, iterations of solidarity economies, 
um, move us away from the stranglehold that capitalism has on like every aspect of our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I add one more thing I was thinking as you were talking? The other notion about the solidarity economy is that it's really based on the real economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say that in the sense of, you know, so much, especially banking and even the corporate world, it's so much about just the exchange, right? That we mm-hmm. can, you know, we can uh, we can bet on, you know, what the future value of something is going to be in five or ten years and make a profit on that, right? And so we get so far away from the actual real economy, the real, you know, living, making a living, people making a living, being able to eat and house their families and, you know, doing work that actually produces things that we can use and need. I think that's the other notion of the solidarity economy, not just the solidarity among humanity, but also that connection to reality, you know, to to real value and real things. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Um, And thinking about that, like, entire range or spectrum of solidarity economy, the kind of more informal aspects versus, you know, the more formalized institutions. I'm wondering, Dr. Gordon Emhart, if you even, I don't know, formal versus informal is the best um, language to use to talk about that. But what do you see as kind of the different um, actors in those two realms of the solidarity economy, if that's a question that makes sense? I think I know what you mean. So yeah, I'm not sure. In the solidarity economy, there's a lot less formal actors, but certainly the co-op world, especially the democratic co-op structures and the grassroots co-ops, I would say, are formal actors. So worker co-ops, credit unions, etc. The thing about co-ops, which I've actually written in a couple places, is they're not, even though we'd like them to be automatically sort of grassroots and democratic, they're not always. Sometimes right. there's a little, they're more democratic for their small group of members, but not for the workers or other people around them. So I often talk about solidarity cooperatives so that I want to add, I'm only talking about the cooperatives that are really democratic, really grassroots, that kind of thing. But so formal actors there, there can be formal actors, I think, in a lot of the other kinds of human organizations that we have. So mutual aid societies, which can be formal or informal, are also a type of a a strong aspect of a solidarity economy because there's lots of ways that people cooperate and do collective uh, work and responsibility that may not be formally recognized in a capitalist system but are definitely considered you know formal in the sense that they're well organized and operate under specific rules and actions right Mm-hmm. So I would say that I think and maybe I should pass this on <laughs> to somebody else because I'm kind of massacring it. But I was also going to say just different organizations like e- e- ecological movements and organizations of people to protect people's rights and protect Mother Nature's rights, that kind of thing, I would see as the actors in a solidarity economy. But really, for me, everybody who's not an exploiter is an actor in a solidarity economy Mm. because we're all trying to survive. We're all trying to make a living in some way. We're all trying to take care of our families and contribute to society in positive ways. And so those of us who aren't doing the exploiting, I think are all part of a solidarity economy, even if we don't call it that or recognize that we should recognize ourselves as actors in that movement. Hell Mm -hmm. yeah. 
That's really powerful. So what I've seen, uh, from what I've seen, a lot of people mostly only know about worker cooperatives, whether they really know what they are, how they operate. Can one or both of you speak a little bit to what worker cooperatives are? So uh, I think both of us could. I was going to jump in there because I just realized I forgot to say what my current passions were in the other question. (laughs) And worker co-ops are one of my current passions. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Nice. So let me talk about them a little bit. So worker cooperatives are cooperatives, which are, again, co-op entities that are owned by the employees. And why that matters is because really the co-op world is pretty much dominated by consumer and producer co-ops. So Mm. why don't I talk about those, what worker co-ops aren't, so you can understand what worker co-ops are a little bit better. So consumer cooperatives are the ones that most of us know the best because probably we know of a food co-op and most food co-ops, though not everyone, are consumer co-ops. And what that means is the consumers, the people who want the goods and services and have a need, come together to address that need and realize that by pooling their resources, buying, you know, uh, buying in bulk together, demanding or organizing uh, a business based on their their needs and demands uh, is what a consumer co-op is. So consumers of food might create a food co-op, especially if we want more vegetarian food, more affordable produce, more organic food, that kind of thing. And so the point is to come together to say, okay, we're not being served. Our food needs aren't being served or we're in a food desert. Let's pool our resources, especially put in our money so we can buy bulk, create a store, and have the kinds of food and the kind of relationship to a food store that we want. Or a credit union is also a consumer cooperative for finance. The banks aren't serving our needs. They're not giving loans in our community. They're not providing the kind, the micro and types of loans we need at good rates. They're not giving us good interest rates. So you come together, everybody pools their deposits so that they can open a financial institution. And then it provides better, affordable access to capital, return on capital, etc. So that's a credit union, rural electric cooperatives, the consumers need electricity, the capitalists see no profit in providing electricity to the people who are so far from each other, right? Because you have to have more lines, electric wiring, than you have people using it. So a normal capitalist business won't provide the electricity. Mm. And so you form an electric co-op. Producer co-ops are like farmers or carpet makers or that kind of thing who want better control over what happens to the sales, distribution, and sometimes even the production of their products. Um, So like Land of Lakes is a co-op of dairy farmers who wanted to control the production of their milk into, you know, cheese and yogurt and all that kind of stuff so they could get better prices, etc., So they create a co-op, they keep their ownership of their farm, but they create a co-op. So that's been the sort of the the more prevalent of co-ops, especially in the United States. But worker co-ops are where the employees actually own the company, own the business, own and run it, or hire a, a manager to help them run it. And that, in some ways, gets us a little closer to a solidarity economy because there you eliminate the exploitation of labor. You have laborers actually deciding for themselves what the work rules are, how to how to distribute the surplus when there's surplus, how to run the company, etc. And so you get 
a lot more, you get a lot closer to democracy, though sometimes you start worker co-ops where the workers don't know enough about their rights and they kind of either hire a manager or allow the people who know a little bit more to run the company. And so sometimes you still need to give, provide more education and more training on how to be a democratic organization, how to come to consensus, how to connect your own empowerment with the group empowerment and how to get your voice heard, how to address conflict resolution, etc. So even worker co-ops have trouble with democracy, but I think they're the closest to democracy and lack of labor exploitation that we have in a formal system. Do you want me to give some examples of worker co-ops that we know about? Or was that good enough? I think that was really, really eloquent. Um, If you'd like to give some examples, that's great. If not, no worries, because that was like, I think, a really well-rounded explanation of that. Okay, well, I can give, I'll give two quick examples since I said it, right? I'm sure there's people listening to the podcast who are like, well, yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Hand it over. I get like that in a podcast too. I'm like, well, don't say you're going to do it or ask and then not do it. So (laughs) just just quickly, Cooperative Home Care Associates, which is actually our largest worker co-op in the United States, started out with um, women who had been on welfare and very low-skilled home care workers. And the idea there was to both increase the quality of home care service and the quality of home care jobs, quality and stability of home care jobs, so that people who are in these very low-skilled, low-paying, contingent, often temporary jobs actually could have real job satisfaction, make living wages, um, move up uh, in the skills ladder, etc. So they created an arm, which is a training association, and they focused on really high quality training. They also worked with the home care industry to get Medicaid wages, Medicaid money applied to home care so they could raise the wages in home care. So then when they were asking for living wages for the co-op, it was still competitive with what the general wages were in home care. And then because of how highly trained their home care workers were, they also were allowed to uh, up the up the pay in that sense and make the pay competitive. And then what they did was because now you had home care workers owning their own company, They also then had a say in the life of the company, the work rules. This was had been very contingent work now because they were a member of the co-op, even if the person they were doing the home care for didn't need them anymore, only needed them part time. They could piece together full time work because the co-op gave them full time work. They gave them vacation time. They joined a union so that they were able to have health care, sick leave. And uh, etc. So this, they took a, uh, an industry that had none of the benefits of uh, being a unionized worker or being a worker in control of your workspace and tried to put in all these controls, all these benefits, all these ways to work better. Um, another worker co-op, and that one is, I said, our largest one and started in 87. So it's also a long-lived co-op. There's a shorter lived co-op that also kind of shows what worker co-ops can be, which was Lusty Ladies, which was actually peep show dancers. Mm. And they first tried to unionize. This was in San Francisco. They first tried to unionize. And actually, after about a two year horrible union fight, they won. But their employer didn't want a union shop. 
and went to sell it. And they realized if the if it got sold to a new employer, they would kind of have to start over again with their unionizing and trying to work get better work rules. So they decided to buy the business themselves. The, the peep show dancers, the bouncers, and the janitors bought the company together as a worker co-op. And so what that allowed them to do was, again, provide more living wages and equitable work situation. They decided to self-manage and run their own company, so they also rotate who are the managers of the company. I think it's every six months because they realize that management is very stressful. They connected with the Berkeley Free Clinic to do to have health care and uh, massages. They reorganized how they did the peep, how they operated the peep show in the past. Only a certain body type and usually a white woman could be in the single windows, which makes mm. more, which made more tips rather than the, the group dance window. And so then they changed their rules so that every single member of the co-op could be in a single window at once a week or whatever, that kind of thing. So again, uh, wow. really democratizing the work, sharing the profits as well as the risks, changing work rules, making uh, what was once a bad job into a decent job, sometimes a great job, giving yeah. people more say, rotating the responsibilities, that kind of thing. So those are two examples that I think give you some sense. They also both happen to be women's co-ops, but still. Yes. Um, <laughs> that's also important because we know in some ways women are some of the most exploited of, of workers. So Totally. Thank Absolutely. you so much. So Evie, I know, I know that um, Dr. Gordon Emhard spoke a little bit about some of the alternatives, but I know you had a bunch of other alternatives to what other forms of solidarity economy exist aside from worker cooperatives? Yeah, so there's there's a lot, a really wide range as we've talked about, but I'll just give some examples. So in New York City, there's over 2,000 different solidarity economy groups that we know about. And this is all done through Solidarity NYC scenic research, census research. And so within the scenic membership, we have um, a bunch of different sectors, and we kind of exist to bridge conversations and relationships across these sectors. So there's some that were already talked about, for example, community development credit unions or consumer cooperatives like food cooperatives, certainly worker-owned co-ops. But amongst our membership, we also have community land trusts, which are basically nonprofit organizations that treat land as a public good. Um, they're typically governed by a tripartite board that includes people that either live on the community land trusts, um, live in the neighborhood, or would be like working on the land of the community land trust. But they exist kind of in different ways. So, for example, in New York, we have the Brooklyn Queens Land Trust, which mm. stewards over 37 different gardens in Brooklyn and Queens and make sure that that land is not vulnerable to um, rampant real estate development that's threatening a lot of gardens throughout the city. But they can also help to secure permanently affordable housing um, and serve to meet different needs depending on the community. We also work with community-supported agriculture programs, or CSAs, which are basically uh, where members purchase a seasonal share, paying the farmers up front and allowing farmers to better plan for their season, purchase new seed, make equipment repairs, etc. Hmm. We also work with housing co-ops. A lot of people are familiar with housing co-ops through the lens of kind of intentional housing, things like that. Mm. We focus more on limited equity or low-income housing cooperatives, which in New York City, a lot of them are called HDFC buildings, uh, which are, I think it's Housing Development Finance Corporation. 
but they're basically part of unique New York City history where residents basically took ownership of their buildings during a period where landlords were leaving a lot of buildings vacant in the 1970s and 1980s. And basically through homesteading and sweat equity and later um, tenant interim lease programs, were able to um, become shareholders of their buildings. And so that's tens of thousands of units of housing in New York City that's housing that many families that we also work with. And then the last that we consider part of our membership is community gardens, which there's a lot of throughout New York City that look really different. There's incredible diversity of community gardens in New York City. Some produce food uh, and anybody that works at the garden can just take it for free. Some are connected to farmer's markets. Some sell their produce. Some are, you know, drop-off sites for CSA programs as well, stuff like that. So that's just kind of the pretty broad overview of different solidarity economy groups and enterprises that we work with here in New York City. Awesome. Thank that's you. That's awesome. One thing that's become really clear to me as I've talked with people about the solidarity economy is that there are a ton of misconceptions and misinformation. That is 100% true. And I think that that gets at what you were saying earlier, Dr. Gordon Emhart, about solidarity cooperatives versus mm-hmm. just saying worker cooperatives. Something that was really interesting to me when I started doing this work was the different angles and lenses through which people were coming to cooperation. I had come to it through environmental justice organizing, queer justice organizing, things like that. And a lot of people are coming from really uh, different angles. And a lot of people, um, especially in New York City, a lot of cooperation can actually be support gentrification and kind of be seen, rightfully so, as kind of a white hipster thing that people are doing mm. in a kitschy way and actually like not in a radical way that is grounded in community resilience and cooperation, which is obviously not the goal of what we envision as a solidarity economy, but certainly a reality. Um, and Dr. Gordon Emhard, your work, Collective Courage, has been essential in unpacking how grounded cooperation is in African-American communities in the United States. And I'm wondering if you can speak to that a bit to kind of counteract the narrative or misunderstanding about what cooperatives are, at least in New York City. Yeah, sure. It would be my pleasure. That's um, another passion of mine is African-American cooperative movement and making sure we understand that. I would also say it's not just misunderstanding about cooperatives, but I think it is about the whole solidarity economy. And I think there's a couple reasons, and I'll get back to the specifics about African-Americans and cooperatives. But, you know, even though solidarity, the social forum and solidarity economy notion started like in Brazil and among people of color in the world, in the U.S. somehow, right, the, the face of it as the face of cooperatives has been, it's seen as sort of white European, white Americans doing it. And it's been kind of a shame, but I think there's a couple of reasons why African Americans haven't either embraced their own history or haven't felt close to the current um, movements. I think one is just the history of sabotage and violence against blacks who tried to do alternative economics throughout U.S. history. And that's some of what I was chronicling in the book Collective Courage, though most of the book is about the successful efforts and the ideology and and theory about why we should be doing solidarity cooperatives and that kind of thing. But I think between how dangerous it was to be involved in alternative economics, because if you remember, African-Americans were brought here as an economic commodity, right, as property for white, white, wealthy whites who basically built capitalism off of enslavement. And so blacks were always thought of as something to make money off of. Right. So between Mm -hmm. making money off of them as free labor and then as 
uh, wage labor, but basically under slave conditions still, and then making money off of African-American consumers, right? When African-Americans mm -hmm. tried to do alternative economics, especially co-ops and other solid economics, that was a threat to white wealth and white capitalism because you took away the labor. They couldn't control our labor anymore if we were doing worker co-ops. They couldn't control us as consumers anymore if we were creating alternative stores and alternative credit places. So there was a lot of animosity and actually uh, white supremacist violence against doing these activities. Um, yeah. So the people who were involved in them, some of them were lynched. The businesses were burned down or destroyed. There was all kinds of nonviolent to violent sabotage. And so I think um, often black communities just hunkered down. The people who were doing the activities went underground and you didn't actually talk about it, especially not publicly. And sometimes you didn't even whisper about it at home with your families because you didn't know who in your family might say something and expose what was happening and get somebody killed or get some of the activity curtailed or something. So I think there was that problem throughout our history. It was not safe to talk about or celebrate how African-Americans were doing these alternative economics. Plus, it was very hard to do it because you do need some kind of resources and some capital, and often African-Americans had none, right? We didn't even own our own bodies for the first two or 300 years being over here. So those are some of the things that got in the way. Um, and then, of course, by the, by the 20th century, there was all the red baiting and anti-communism, anti-socialism, and co-ops were associated with that. And again, blacks couldn't afford to be red baited and to be called communists and socialists because, again, it would ruin your career, it would ruin your prospects to do anything. Um, was very dangerous for that. So there were lots of reasons not to talk about it or not to recognize it and not to publicize it. So then young people growing up, especially if their families weren't comfortable telling them about what had happened in the past, all they see is white European Americans practicing and doing, engaging in these things. And so then they start this rhetoric about, oh, black people don't do that. That's when I first in the 90s started talking about that we should do community-based economic development, cooperatives, collective ownership. That's what I got back. Everyone kept telling me, oh, no, 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 hippies do that. Black people don't do that. We don't even know how to cooperate. And, you know, and so I, you know, I took it upon myself to try to figure out where that was coming from. I, I couldn't believe that, that was true. And, of course, it's not true. I was trying to figure out where it was coming from, and I really did the research on the book because I was trying to show that, yes, we do have these legacies, we do have this history, let's reconnect to that history. Yeah, I think that's so important, and I just wanted to jump in with sort of another example of the ways that anti-communal economy positions have been taken in a direct effort to crush Black economic freedom in America. So I, just as some background for our guests, I'm uh, currently a PhD candidate in history, and I this is some of the stuff that I work on. Um, and one of the things that is really striking to me is looking at the South in the immediate aftermath of slavery, because um, the economy in much of the South itself 
you, you didn't have a lot of, you know, uh, basically capitalist labor relations. You had a lot of production for a capitalist economy, but there was a lot of, especially outside the cities, you know, large planters with slaves and then yeomen who are producing for home market and their own personal use, um, and to some extent commodities. But anyway, there was a lot of sort of communal relations, um, particularly between the poor whites and the planters sort of allowed these things to happen. It kept poor white people basically secure. So one of the things that we've totally lost sight of is that much of the South used to be open hunting grounds. So like land was held in common in the way that a lot of people might be familiar with if you're familiar with like pre-industrial, pre-capitalist Europe. A lot of land in the South was held in common as hunting grounds. So anybody, whether you were, you know, a landowner or, you know, a, one of the small number of tenant farmers could go out and hunt, you know, wild boars or whatever um, in these common ground woods. In the aftermath of slavery, as black people became free, the commons were essentially shut down very quickly. That land was grabbed up, um, especially it was under sort of under the context of redistribution back to the planters, basically, in the aftermath of the Civil War, after the Union had taken much of the South, planters began to grab that land up for themselves. And one of the main reasons behind this move was that they wanted to make sure that black people, the freed slaves, wouldn't be able to subsist on their own, that they would be dependent on planters and would have to go back into the same sorts of farming that they had been required to do as slaves. And the effect of this was to reduce much of the Black population in the South after the Civil War and after Reconstruction, when this all was sort of taking place, um, to reduce them back into a position of economic subservience, largely, you know, poor sharecroppers. But the other effect that it had that people I think are sort of less aware of too is that it reduced a lot of white people, poor white farmers to the same position because they no longer had access to a major food source that they had been utilizing before for a lot of their basically like the meat in their diet and also, you know, foraging, that kind of thing. And so when we think about the impoverishment of the South and the aftermath of Reconstruction, it's a big part of that is this massive movement away from what could be considered a kind of cooperative economy. Of course, a cooperative, I'm not trying to like romanticize the civil pre-Civil War South in any way, but that in the aftermath of the Civil War, Black people, freed slaves became involved very quickly, you know, in taking advantage of these resources and the white people in power who had been participating in these capitalist markets immediately moved to privatize land, essentially. And so when you have the vast majority of people in the South, black and white, really, really poor at the beginning of the 20th century, that's a huge part of why becomes this cycle of poverty and capital and land accumulation that benefits the white planters at the top, born out of a program of white supremacy. Right. And people don't realize how deliberate it was, right? Mm -hmm. They always think, oh, well, it just happened or, you know, it just developed that way. It's unfortunate, whatever. But glad you reminded us how deliberate it was. The other, the thing that does give me hope, and I know we're coming up against the break, I think, soon. But I just wanted to mention also one of my favorite time periods for understanding solidarity economy in the United States and the growth of cooperatives in the United States is the 1880s, mm -hmm. which is 
after Reconstruction is over and some of this, it's also the period, right, of, of establishing Jim Crow and segregation in the South, reestablishing, right, all the all the repressions, mm-hmm. whereas the Reconstruction period was at least the beginning of trying to have some civil rights and a little bit of economic rights. But mm-hmm. the other thing that happened in that period, it was extremely repressive for both, as you said, lower class whites and blacks pushing them off the land, making them, forcing them to be sharecroppers or actually the convict lease system, right? It was illegal to be unemployed. So if you were unemployed, you were put into jail and then you were leased out to the same old plantation owners to do the work again. But now you were doing it as slave labor in prison. So all those things, but there is some hope in that period. The 1880s was also one of the most prolific periods of black and I think white co-op development in U.S. history aside from the 30s and 40s. And what was happening was you did have resistance. You had Mm -hmm. the development of unions. You had the development of formal co-op associations. You had the development of populist movement, which was Mm -hmm. a back to the land, take control of the land movement. And all three of those movements actually worked together and were integrated in the sense that they realized that if they only were for whites or only for blacks, they wouldn't make as much progress. So the Knights of Labor is one of those unions that also promoted worker co-ops and cooperation. They were an integrated movement. They were also fighting against uh, the, the repressive anti-civil rights laws. Some The first black official union was also a mutual aid society and a union and a co-op development association, the, Nas- the Colored Farmers National Alliance and Cooperative Union. Uh, they actually had over a million members, black members. This is in the 1880s. And they believed in starting their own co-ops. They believed in worker rights. They also started credit co-ops so that blacks could try to buy land and get a mortgage through their own credit co-op. Uh, they tried to align with the white cooperative movement, sometimes successfully and sometimes not. But it was an incredible time of the kind of activity that we would like to see even now where everybody is kind of working together with the same values. But it was also an incredible period of repression, right? The Ku Klux Klan are gaining a foothold and actually terrorizing both unions and Mm -hmm. black groups. Um, And so all those unions and progressive groups have to go underground because of the violence. But yet it's still there's a good 10 years where you have these huge organizations that are all saying the same thing about land ownership for small farmers, uh, worker co-ops, collective ownership, rights of female workers. You know, we need to go back to the Reconstruction era. So it's interesting how even in the worst repressions, we still have all this underground movement trying to do solidarity economies. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. So we're going to consider this the end of part one. So that's our show for this week, which it was obviously amazing. (laughs) Be sure to join us next week for the second half of this episode where we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Gordon Empard and Evie. It's super cool. Nothing weird's happening at all right now on our end. (laughs) But seriously, thank you for listening. um, And thanks for being here. This is amazing conversation. As always, you can follow us on all the social medias, Twitter at Season of the Bee, Instagram, and Facebook as well. We also have a website, Season of the Bee, which like obviously you heard, we have some sweet merch up there. And you can listen, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. And drum roll. We are doing a live show in New York. Yeah, That's right, y'all. 
We will be there in your fine city August 11th, 2018. It's a Saturday. We'll be doing some stuff beforehand, too. Hanging out, chilling out, maxing, relaxing all cool. Yes. And uh, more details. Our venue chosen, also. It's Star Bar. <laughs> Star Bar. Yeah. Are we good? Can we announce it? It is. It's good to go. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll be um, August 11th at Star Bar in Brooklyn. So yes. hope to see you all there. Yeah, and it's super accessible, and there's going to be a dance party afterwards, and we're just going to have a best time ever, so you better be there. Yeah. Okay. okay love okay. you guys. Love, love you. Bye. Love you. <laughs> 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 Season of the Bitch.